Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, it truly is good to be with the people of God this morning. I've been excited about this morning all week. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together for the first time as a new congregation. God truly is good, gracious, and merciful. On top of that, I get to preach from the Word of God on a passage that I hope just might help us understand the whole mood and the thrust of Matthew's Gospel. To be able to better understand the message of John the Baptist and Jesus after him just a little better. To help us step back for a moment and see the big picture that gave rise to the intensity and the immediacy of the need to repent at the coming of the kingdom of heaven. John the baptizer carried the most important message that God had ever given to a man to this point. He came to earth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He declared that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That God was coming to his people. John proclaimed a very difficult, devastating even, message for the nation of Israel. This nation had been taught that they had God's favor that they were guaranteed God's favor because of their connection to Abraham. They had been taught that their good works, according to the traditions and the teachings of the religious leaders of the day, were something solid on which they could stand. They believed that they stood in the tradition of the patriarchs, that they, along with the patriarchs, were waiting the long-expected salvation of God. But what they heard at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven was quite different. John told them that they needed to repent. That they repent of their sins and the rejection of God's commandments. His words pulled the rug right out from underneath their feet. They were not, in fact, righteous. They were not, in fact, secure in the favor of God. And they were not soon to receive salvation from their enemies. That is, if they remained as they were, they would find themselves utterly destroyed by the righteous fury of God that was following close behind the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. John served the purpose of securing a remnant out of the nation of Israel for Jesus. He served the purpose of securing a faithful remnant who would not follow their leaders in rejecting their Messiah. A faithful remnant who would repent of their own righteousness, of their religion. A faithful remnant who would turn their hearts back to the Lord their God and would embrace His righteousness. John's message carried great urgency. The day of judgment was not something that was far distant in the future. It was in fact very near. It was tied to the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The people needed to repent and to serve God as He desired, or they would face judgment. The coming of the kingdom of heaven demanded either repentance or judgment. There was no other option, and there would be no delaying. 
Last week we learned about John, and we heard the beginnings of this message that he had for the people. Something new was at hand, and it demanded action. We're going to look this morning at the broader context of why that message was so urgent, and ask why John, and Jesus after him, would not, indeed could not, mince words. As we get into our text in just a few moments, we will see John ask the religious leaders of the day, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What is that wrath to come that I believe is the motivating force behind John's hard words? Behind Jesus' radical call to follow him in obedience? And behind the great effort that Matthew goes to in his gospel to try and open the eyes of the Jewish readers so that they might see and believe. God had come to His people. Salvation was at hand for all who would believe in Him. Yet, the nation as a whole was doomed and was marked for destruction because of her continued unfaithfulness. When you remember that as Matthew wrote this gospel, The rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel was already something that was in the past. It was already something that had taken place. The promises of destruction were already made by the Messiah. Remember, the leaders of the people had already accepted the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be upon their heads and to be upon the heads of their children. All those things had already taken place as Matthew is writing this gospel. There was no doubt that judgment was on its way as Matthew wrote these words and recounted the message of John and later on Jesus. The only question was at this time was how many would repent and be saved before it was too late. That is the context of Matthew's gospel. That is the calling that was given to John to preach repentance of sin so that some might be ready to welcome the Messiah, so that some might be willing and able to receive Him, to believe on Him, to be saved. That some might be able to find salvation rather than destruction at the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Join me in prayer. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Don't let strong words hold us back from embracing the truth of your word. Father, give us an increased faith, an increased sense of urgency both for us to depend wholly and completely on Christ and for us to be a light of the gospel, to call others to believe. Help us to understand the gospel more clearly, to feel the urgency of life and death, eternity in the balance. Father, let that roll over us and wash over us and change us. Give us a heavenly perspective to see what you are doing and to love our fellow man enough to call them to repentance. Father, first begin in with us. Reveal the sin in our hearts. Don't let us hold on to anything that would keep us from Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even though John the Baptist had been proclaiming a hard message for the people of Israel, he had also welcomed with open arms all who would come and be made right with the Lord their God. He had amassed quite a following, quite a crowd, as he preached and as he baptized those who heard and were willing to repent. John had many disciples. We have every reason to expect that even the very hard, direct words of John were saturated with love and compassion for the people that were coming out to him. That is, until he saw a group of Pharisees 
and Sadducees making their way down among the people. Well, verse 7 gives us the impression in some translations that a, a group of these two parties might be coming to be baptized as though they too wanted to hear the message of John and that they might believe and repent. But the Greek does not indicate that they were coming to be baptized, simply that they were coming to where John was baptizing. This matches closely with the response that John gave when he noticed them coming out to him. He was able to discern that they were not coming to hear his message for repentance to be made right with God. They did not want to be made ready for the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to examine what he was doing. They wanted to assess the damage that he might cause their relative positions among the people. We know from history and from Scripture that the Pharisees and Sadducees were not often willing to work with one another. In fact, they despised one another. Well, let's briefly review what we know about these two groups because we are going to encounter these groups over and over again as we travel through the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees, they were the benchmark for religious devotion. They were the ones who were extremely zealous for the law. They continually added more and more regulations so that they might show how much more devoted they were to show off their great piety by their actions. It was the Pharisees who controlled the synagogues and had great influence over the regular spiritual lives of the Jewish people. The Pharisees were seen as being the most holy and most righteous among the people. That is the impression the people had of them. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus used their righteousness as the standard that all people would understand as being something that was the highest man could achieve by himself. And there Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus was not there praising them as though that they were really righteous. He said that even the ultra-pious lifestyles of the Pharisees could not earn man entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Even these men who set the standard, who raised the bar, time after time of what it looked like to, to give of yourself, to, to sacrifice of yourself, to try and present yourself more and more religious, even they were not good enough. And if they were not good enough, if that was not enough, then nobody had a chance. In a way, the Pharisees were the progressives of the day. They routinely debated on how the interpretation of the law might change based on the time and the place. They did believe in spir the spiritual world. They did believe in life after death. And they believed in a future day of punishment and reward. They believed in a resurrection. However, these concepts were continually being reimagined and redeveloped to match the teacher or the situation. They were continually being rethought of in order so that one might elevate himself above his peers as he came up with a new interpretation, a new way to follow in according to his teaching. Well, the main concern of the Pharisees in regard to the ministry of Jesus would be that he did not follow their oral traditions. That John and then Jesus after him called their righteousness, called their authority into question. The Sadducees were much less concerned with following the law than they were with maintaining their relative position. They were zealous for their positions of power over the people. They were zealous for the standing of privilege that they had within the Roman government. These were the aristocrats of Israel. These were the men who were the descendants of the high priestly line. They had the control over the temple and over the sacrifices. The Sadducees rejected all the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They only claimed up the authority of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe that God had any providential care in the world. They didn't believe in a future judgment or reward. They taught that this world was all that man had and could have hoped for. The Sadducees would oppose Jesus on the threat that they believe he posed to their authority and their position. 
They feared that he would upend the status quo that was so decisively tilted in their favor. Well, both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, took great care to preserve their positions of power over the people. Both of these groups had reason to go out and see John. His popularity was a threat to them all. So much of a threat that they were willing to go together to address it. They knew that a prophet could be more dangerous to the establishment than even their greatest enemies. Well, as we said before, when John saw these men coming, he knew they were not coming to be made right with God. He turned to them and he addressed them so that everybody that was there might hear. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Of course, there is a a sense of sarcasm in this response. Who suggested to them that they might be able to escape this coming wrath? I believe that in coming out to John, these leaders hoped to be able to get a better understanding of this commotion that had taken hold among the people. That if they couldn't prevent people from going out to John, then just maybe they might be able to co-op the movement somehow and maintain their their position with the people that were going out to John. As though they could go out and carry the, the weight of their influence and their importance would be a buffer to hold John back from really taking the hearts of the people. John, knowing that they had showed no signs of repentance, had harsh words for them. Because it was, it was they, it was these religious leaders and the religious leaders who came before them in their traditions who had corrupted the worship of God in Israel. John spoke to this small group, but his intention was to strike a chord of terror in everybody that heard his rebuke. The rebuke was for them, but it was also for everyone else to hear, to be warned, to fear. John called them a brood of vipers. He had no doubt seen many vipers in his days in the wilderness. He knew how they would scurry away, how they would slither to find holes for safety at the approaching heat of a wildfire. He knew that these hypocrites might somehow sense the coming flame of the wrath of God. And rather than give them any room to feel secure or to give them any hole in which to hide, He looked in the darkness of their hearts and He pronounced judgments upon them. Of course, calling these men a brood of vipers is fairly mild compared to what is spoken about them elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. Time and again, when we encounter these two groups, it's in the midst of their attempts to manipulate and to deceive, to try and trick or to trap Jesus and His disciples. Collectively, Jesus warned against the teachings of these men. In Matthew 16, he likened them to leaven that might ruin the whole container of flour or the lump of dough. Particularly, the strongest words of Christ were reserved for the Pharisees. Well, why this? Because the Sadducees, they ignored God's word, but the Pharisees twisted it and distorted it and changed it and added to it for their own gain. Well, Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 23 of the Pharisees that they sit on Moses' seat, they preach, but they do not practice, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Later on, that same chapter, Jesus said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, blind guides! You blind fools! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs. You serpents! You brood of vipers! How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Well, strong 
in the Old Testament prophetic tradition, John the Baptist knew that the day of the Lord pointed much more to darkness and chaos and destruction than to light for those who were not in a right relationship with God. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven, the arrival of the Son of God on this earth, would be both the best of days and the worst of days. For those who would believe, for those who would repent of their own righteousness, to accept the righteousness of God, to be made right with God, for those, it would be the best of days. That they would, at the arrival of the Son, they would receive a salvation from God that they could never hope to imagine achieving on their own. But, for those who believe they already possessed all they needed to stand before God, the arrival of Jesus would be the pronouncement of doom and destruction. John, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, was able to look ahead to see the judgment that was on its way. John understood the state of religion in Israel. He knew that this nation would be destroyed on account of it. He preached with a sense of immediacy because he knew it was so close at hand. He knew it wasn't long, far off. It was, it was close. It was near. Wrath, judgment, destruction was coming. Matthew recounts his message and the message of Jesus to instill that sense of immediacy to his readers. Because by the time Matthew is writing this, that destruction, that doom, that judgment is oh so close. And we look back on history with the knowledge of how that destruction fell on the nation of Israel. We can account in history some 40 years after this teaching of John the Baptist and Jesus, and we can see that that nation, that city, the temple, was destroyed, scattered. And great was the terror. This is the context that I want us to carry with us as we continue our study through Matthew's Gospel. Just as Jesus promised in Matthew 23.36 and 24.34, that generation that He would speak to would not pass away before God's judgment was brought on the nation for their breaking of the covenant with their God and for their murder of the Son of God. The first of those passages points to the promised result of the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees pronounced against them after that long series of woes I read just a moment earlier. Matthew 23, 33-36 says, You serpents! You brood of vipers! How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The second passage in Matthew 24-34 is in the context of Jesus giving warnings and signs for the people to look out for the end of the age and for the coming of the Son of Man in great glory and power. He says this generation would not pass away until these things took place. Well, we will have a much fuller discussion of that passage, a fuller discussion of all these things later on when we get there. We've got a long way to go yet in Matthew. But it is clear that in A.D. 70, Jesus did come in power and great glory. And He destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and cut off the nation of Israel. That the wrath of God was poured out upon the nation who had abandoned and rejected her God. What can you see? How keeping this looming judgment in our minds as we work through this Gospel might help us see and feel the drive of the author and the speakers. They knew it was coming. 
They pleaded with people to repent and to believe. We know it happened as they said it would happen. We also know that the judgment for Israel at the rejection of the Messiah is not the last judgment of God that He will bring. Just as John, Jesus, and Matthew were fueled by the knowledge of what was about to fall on unbelieving Israel, so we too ought to be fueled by the knowledge of what is soon to fall on the unbelieving world around us. The patience of God is not weakness or lack of resolve. Don't fall into the mistake of those that were mocking that Peter talked about in 2 Peter. Mocking. Things are the same now as they always have been. Where is this coming of your Lord? Where is this judgment that was promised? And Peter replies that God is not slow as some consider slowness. He has His time, His purposes. And very soon after that, the judgment of God fell on the nation of Israel. Well, again now, God is being merciful. God is being merciful in spite of the evil and wickedness of the land around us. May we use that time that is given to call men to faith and repentance. Beloved, judgment is coming. Believe while salvation is yet available. We're back to our text. John, after chastising the religious leaders for seeking that they might flee the wrath of God, he tells them that if they would be right with God, they must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the the true repentance that would allow someone to escape the wrath of God is not a mere outward act. It's not something that can be faked. It is an inward change. Nothing that a man can do can make him right with God. Only God's grace, according to the sacrifice of His Son, and the penalty that He paid on behalf of believing men, can cause the warm countenance of God to fall upon Him. This inward change can only be brought about by a work of God. Just as only God can create a man, only God can recreate him. Scripture makes clear that this inward change will present itself in an outward response. True repentance always brings about good fruit. It brings about actions that are in accordance that are in line with the inward change that has already taken place. No, the good works do not earn the change. The good works do not bring about the change. They are the evidence that the inward change has already taken place. Because you cannot make a bad tree good by hanging some apples off of its dead branches. If you want to see that a tree is good, look for the good fruit that every good tree produces. As Jesus proclaimed in Luke 6.43, He said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. John was speaking these harsh, these very hard words to the hypocrites who had made themselves the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. Yet his message was not just for them, but for everyone who would hear. The true repentance that John preached in response to the coming of the kingdom of heaven was not an empty ritual, but a real change of the entire person. The true repentance at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven would move someone from the self-justifying and inward focus of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it would move them to become poor in spirit. It would move them to mourn over sin, to recognize their inability and their weakness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, 
to be willing to be persecuted for what they believe and for doing what is right. In short, it would be for those who are counted blessed at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven to be those who were ready to embrace the Son of God. After Jesus tells the Pharisees and Sadducees to bear fruit in accordance with repentance, He continued His rebuke of them by destroying the cornerstone of their confidence in the relationship with God. Their physical connection to Abraham. John told them, And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. One belief that united all the Jewish religious leaders of that day was that their physical relationship to Abraham was a guarantee of their status before God. While God had judged Israel in the past, He had always kept her as a people for Himself. They believed that God needed them. That without them, God would have no one to be able to proclaim His name among the nations. Of course, John's message anticipates that of Jesus and that of the New Testament. That the true descendants of Abraham are not those who are of Abraham by the flesh, but of those who are of the faith of Abraham. As Paul proclaimed in Galatians 3, 7-9, Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. John continued with his argument in telling these religious leaders that God is able to fulfill His promises to Abraham without them. God did not need them. He could make a nation for Abraham even out of these stones. The Hebrew and Aramaic words for stones and children are fairly close in pronunciation. There's a little bit of a a wordplay going here. John was telling these hypocrites who claim for themselves all of the benefits of being Abraham's descendants, that even out of these common stones, or people, if you will, God could replace them. The Gentiles, who were looked down as dogs by the Jews, would be raised up to be given to Abraham as his descendants, according to the faith of Abraham. The foundation of the confidence of the Pharisees and Sadducees was torn down. It should be of no surprise to us how they respond throughout the rest of the Gospel. Well, in John, we see that to preach the kingdom of heaven is to preach that any tree, regardless of its roots, that does not bring forth good fruit will be destroyed. That a a tree that does not produce fruit has no purpose other than to be burned as fuel in the fire. The chopping down of a tree was an Old Testament metaphor that God used for the judging of the pagan nations. The, The Israelites were familiar with this kind of pronouncement of judgment, though they never would have imagined that that judgment would have been applied to them. The people knew that the day of the Lord would be a dark day for the enemies of God. But now, they were being told that in following these hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees, that they had become enemies of God. Their destruction would come swiftly unless their lives produced the fruit of repentance. John said that the axe was already at the roots of the tree. There was no delaying. There was no discussion. There was no suing for terms. Either they must repent and be reconciled to God, or they would be thrown into the fire with the rest of the nation 
for the rejection of God's Messiah. If you remember, I mentioned earlier Nebuchadnezzar and his time of being humbled. Partly the way that Scripture talked about that beforehand to promise what was going to happen was that his tree would be cut down, but the stump would be left. The stump was left for Nebuchadnezzar in that vision in order to signify that the judgment on him was not permanent. He would be restored after he had come to the knowledge of who God was and who ruled over heaven and earth. But John, when he's talking to these hypocrites here in our passage, does not tell them that the stump would remain. It is not simply that the tree would be cut down. Their tree would be cut down at the roots. When the roots of a tree are removed, there can be no future growth. When a tree produces no fruit, it's because it's a bad tree. A good tree can be pruned, can be fed to increase the fruit it produces. But a bad tree must be completely removed lest it spread its disease to the trees around it. The axe at the root of the tree signifies the ultimate finality of the destruction that was soon at hand. God had been extremely patient and long-suffering with the nation of Israel. Time and again, Israel had neglected the Word of God. Time and again, they had turned to idols. Time and again, they had placed their faith and their trust in the pagan nations around them rather than the Lord, their God, who redeemed them out of slavery. The coming of the kingdom of heaven meant that ethnic Israel would no longer be able to test the patience of God. That He would finally cut them down at the root and throw them into the fire. Well, just as an aside here quickly, that doesn't mean that it was impossible for individuals or even large groups of ethnic Israel to repent and come to faith in Christ after this judgment. Day by day, individual physical descendants of Abraham do come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and are saved. We hope, we pray, that one day there will be great revivals among ethnic Israel, that they will be awakened to who Christ is and repent of their idolatry and believe. But what this does mean is that the dead and empty religion of that day is gone. It has been done away with. It will never again stand as pleasing and acceptable to God. God does not belong to one nation. He calls men of every nation, every tongue, every tribe to believe in His Son, to become His children, to become heirs of the kingdom of heaven. As John preached, Israel would soon be cut off. Yet, if a wild branch could be grafted in, so could the natural branch. John's message to Israel was that it wouldn't be their heritage or their religion that would save them from judgment at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. They had to repent of those confidences and turn instead to the righteousness of the kingdom. They needed God to work change within them They needed the kind of change that would produce the good fruits. So let's ask again, what is this good fruit? Remember the history, the moment in history that we're talking about. These people were being called to repent of the false religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because unless they turned from that false religion, they would join them in their rejection of the Messiah and perish. So the the fruit of repentance that John was preaching was to be able to and willing to accept and believe in the message, the person, and the work of Jesus. 
God had come to His people. The eternal Son of God had taken on flesh. And He was about to be revealed to His people as the long-awaited Messiah. Those who repented of their false religion were awakened to the reality of their bankruptcy before God. They were ready to hear the radical call to follow Jesus. The soil of their hearts was tilled and free from weeds. It was ready to receive the seed of the gospel that would produce much fruit. The message of John was clear. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. There was no exceptions to be made for special circumstances. No one had any room to stand before the God of Israel when judgment fell. The Son of God would not be impressed with how well they followed the traditions and the commandments of the Pharisees. He would not be impressed by their demands based on their pure bloodlines. Brokenness He would heal. Arrogance He would crush. The nation was about to be cut off. The religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees was a dead, rotten, smoldering thing. The call rang out from John among the people, Repent and be made ready for the arrival of your King. He has seen what you have become. And He will judge this nation. Beloved, if you look at the history of Israel, it is one of repeatedly hearing and not believing the warnings of judgment that were about to fall on them for their sin. The human condition is such that we will do whatever it takes to convince ourselves that the full weight of our failures could not possibly come down upon us. Even more frightening is our ability to move from an awareness of our shortcomings toward justifying ourselves. Ultimately, we can move all the way to where we stand proud of our sin. So much so, that we will judge others who don't join us. And we will respond violently to any questioning of our actions or our beliefs. We see this pattern clearly played out in the Pharisees and Sadducees. We see this played out in the lives of many around us who, as Paul wrote in Romans 1, not only practice immorality, but demand that others practice and celebrate in it with them. Beloved, as much as we can look at Israel and see this pattern, as much as we can look at the world around us and see this pattern, we must not close our eyes to where we fall into the same sort of pattern. I can't say exactly how this might look in your life, or even for sure that this is something that you currently struggle with. But what I can say is that all too often, I interact with professing Christians who have become very bold and proud about the things of which they ought to either hold very loosely or to be outright ashamed. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We fall into sinful mindsets and patterns. It happens. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is why we so desperately need one another. This is why we need the church. We need other believers to care enough about us to call us on things when we are in sin, to point out when we are in something, a mindset or a behavior that is questionable, when we need to reconsider something in our lives. That isn't judgment. That is love. Don't believe that it's anything else. The thing that frightens me is that far too many professing Christians have adopted the response of the world rather than the response from Scripture when they face questions and rebuke. Far too many professing Christians prove by their actions that they care more about getting to live how they want to live than they care about pursuing and being holy. Holy. 
They are more concerned with people recognizing the virtue of their ideas and their actions than they are with actually being virtuous. They are more concerned with protecting their personal projection of reality than they are of being conformed to Christ. Truly, it is not hard for us to fall into this way of thinking. Our flesh is desperate to cling to any version of our own righteousness. Our flesh wants to demand that God approve us as we are. We don't want to have to conform or to change or to admit that we don't get to set the standard. Well, if that is the impulse of our flesh, and I believe it is, then our culture has built for us this perfect storm. Day after day, we are being inundated by the demand of the arrogant, the lustful, the greedy, and the perverse to celebrate with them for what they are or what they want to be or what they pretend to be. Our culture is consumed with the autonomy of the self. And that worldview is poisoning far too many Christians. Beloved, it is not mean or rude or judgmental for a brother or sister in Christ to question things that you say or you do. It is not arrogant to hold up the perfect standard of Scripture and ask a professing believer how their words or their actions measure up to it. It is not destructive or aggressive to call someone to repent when they are in sin. And it isn't denying someone's worth to warn them when they are headed down a dangerous path and that they need to change lest they fall to ruin. As followers of Christ, we ought not to hold so tightly to our actions and our way of thinking that we think ourselves beyond question. We ought to have so much of a desire to be conformed to Christ that we welcome the opportunity to reflect upon and evaluate what we think, what we say, and how we act. We know that we don't have everything figured out. We know that we aren't as we ought to be. And as Charles Spurgeon so aptly put it, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. Of course, this is obviously not an excuse to be heavy-handed or to enjoy pointing out the faults of others. Those are also sins that need to be put to death. The point is that believers must not be so dug into their ways that they become deaf to the calls of Christ. Be that through the prompting of the Spirit, be that through the text of Scripture, or be that through the accountability and care of the church. This is what happened to unbelieving Israel so long ago. The message of John could not have been easy to hear. It called upon the people to repent and reevaluate everything that they knew. Those that cared more about being right with God than they cared about their way of doing things repented and were able to embrace the salvation found at the Messiah, at the coming of His kingdom. Those who were focused on defending what they said or what they had or how they were, how they thought, those who were focused on defending themselves refused the words of life and they perished in their sins. This is a message that the unbelieving world needs to hear. This is a message we need to be bold enough and faithful enough to proclaim to this culture that has built up a great fortress of defense against any call to submit or to change. But beloved, before we carry this message outward, we must speak it inward. We cannot hold on to sin in our own lives while demanding that others let go of the sin in theirs. We must be ever ready to repent when we are shown that we are in error. We must be ever willing to continually reconsider what we think 
in what we do and strive to conform always to Christ. Beloved, we cannot afford to follow the spirit of the age. Its effects are devastating on the church. We must call the world to repent and to believe. We must call on many in the church to repent and believe. There is no time to waste. Judgment is really just around the corner. It will not be delayed. And none who remain in their sin will escape. May God break us of any hardness in our hearts. May He grant us true belief and true repentance. May He be pleased to send us out in the spirit and the power of John to call upon all men to repent and believe. And may we never forget about the wrath that is yet to come and strive with all men that some might believe. Father, these are our strong words. Strong words that you gave to your servant John. Strong words that were important then, they're they're important now. Father, break us of anything that wants to hold on to our own ideas of righteousness. Break us of, of any pride that demands that we be right and nobody else have anything to say to us. Father, conform us to Christ. And I pray that you would bring down heavy upon me anything that will make me more like Christ and pleasing to you. Whether that's to be comfortable or to be in want, to be lifted up or to broken down, Lord. Make me like Christ. Make this church like Christ. Build beneath our feet such a foundation that we cannot be shaken by this world. Pray these things in Christ's holy and righteous name. Amen.